Broadcast, research, innovation, practice, enterprise. You're listening to Ripecast, the podcast series for all things research, innovation, practice and enterprise here at Dublin Business School. I'm Barney Taylor and today I'm joined by Connor Murphy. Connor, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Barney. It's good to be here. And a quick shout out to our super tech, Dave. Hi, Dave. Thanks for organizing everything tech-wise. Thank you very much, Dave. Without you, nothing would work and nothing would be possible. Connor, listen, I'd love to hear all about your activities in these areas, but let's begin at the beginning. Perhaps you might say who you are within Dublin Business School and what you bring to the conversation about research. Well, yes, um, Connor Murphy, aged 58, 15 years seniority here at Dublin Business School, working in the area of film and creative media. And really, I came to film late in my career. I started off in higher education in Spain in the 1990s, working as an Erasmus coordinator for one of the universities in Barcelona. So I was traveling around Europe, um, linking up third-level institutions in the UK, in France, in Portugal, in Ireland also, uh, and of course back to Barcelona. And then I came back to Ireland in 2000, mucked around for a couple of years in the language testing business, and then had an epiphany, as you do at the age of 40, a midlife <laughs> crisis, uh, announced to my then wife that I was going back to university to do a full-time master's in film, which is what I'd always wanted to do, but which hadn't existed when I was an undergraduate back in the dark ages. So I went back to UCD, did their famous MA in film studies and stayed on in UCD after that, started a PhD program in 2006 and I was lecturing in UCD from 06 to 2010. That's when we first met, wasn't it? Exactly. There was a conference at Trinity, I think. It was you that old into the conference that was organised with TCD and UU, wasn't it? Exactly. It was John Hill That's and, right. and uh, Kevin Rocket. And Kevin and Eva Rocket. Rocket. And Ruth Barton, and yeah. you were on the staff at Trinity at the time. So we met, our eyes met across a conference table. Did I, con I didn't convene your session, did I? You did convene my session. Did I? Okay. And you said very nice things about my paper. Well, there you go, so then, you see. the mutual backstratching continues <laughs> 15 years later. But you were kind enough to offer me a job then in, UC in, in DBS uh, a couple of years later in 2009. Mm -hmm. And I've been uh, full-time in DBS ever since. Fantastic. And obviously, one of the things that you've brought to DBS is knowledge and background in terms of film production, because this is another feather in your cap, I think, or string to your bow. You have your IMDb credits. Have you got 12? Yeah, well, if you, look at, if you look at my LinkedIn profile, which I encourage all our listeners to do, uh, it'll say Connor Murphy, film lecturer and film producer. And uh, as part of my work starting in UCD back in the mid-2000s, I met with uh, James Fair, English filmmaker, who's now at Bournemouth University, Dr. James Fair, and we started um, a series of feature films made in 72 hours. We would shoot, edit, and screen a film during film festivals. We started that in Galway at the mm. Film Fly in 2008. Uh, James went down to Australia and did one in Melbourne in 2010. He That's did right. another one in Birmingham in 2012. And then from that whole process, came the idea to run a master's program, which we did at Filmbase here, the late lamented defunct yeah, Filmbase. Sadly missed Filmbase. Uh, in the Temple Bar, and we set up, James and myself and Alan Fitzpatrick, and, yeah. and you were very instrumental and very helpful in the initial validation process, Absolutely, I remember, yeah. with Staffordshire University. Yeah. So we had a one-year full-time master's degree in digital film, feature film production, yeah. um, which produced a bunch of 
really good industry standard, broadcast standard feature films. That have been on RTE been on, and Aer Lingus and things like that. Been on RTE. Well, one of them is still available for sale on Amazon Prime. Yeah. Uh, Poison Pen, Amazon Prime, three ninety nine. Did yeah. I say that? Can I say that again? You can. Shameful. Interestingly, also, the connection further deepens because a lot of DBS graduates from the film program went on to these master's programs and then have gone on to have highly, uh, very, very successful careers. Richard Bolger, I'm thinking, Ali Doyle would be two in particular. Well, Richard has alumni. done exceptionally well. Yeah. Um, he's produced a number of feature films. Including Cardboard Gangsters, wasn't it? Cardboard Gangsters was yeah. the biggest grossing uh, domestic film in Ireland in 2017. He made that, I think, at the age of 28. Absolutely. Uh, and he's a graduate of ours at DBS and then a graduate in film base afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's still working on, on big projects. He did a project last summer with Antonio Banderas and another project with um, Killian Murphy. So I can hear a word here in my head, which is really something that strings all of this together. Now, you know what I'm going to say, Connor? Practice. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you might talk about why practice and research need to be part of this new lexicon. And indeed, we've also added innovation and enterprise. But I know that practice has been the word on the front of your T-shirt for the last 10 years. 15. 15 years. Maybe 20. Okay, so what does practice mean to you within a practice research Practice means context? research. Research means practice. These two words are utterly indistinguishable in my brain and most importantly in my practice, my teaching practice. That's the day job. That's what I'm here doing any number of hundred hours uh, a year at DBS. <laughs> but all of my teaching has always been informed yeah. by practice. My practice, but also other people's practice. Yeah. Yeah. I can't teach a film, I can't teach a course on Martin Scorsese without looking at his practice. No. So... In the same way, my film practice as a producer and as a writer and, mm -hmm. and various other activities that I've had um, informs my teaching. So my teaching in class with my first year, second year, third year students and, and hopefully our postgraduate students when we have some next year will be intimately informed by my practice. It's so for me, research practice is the same thing. It's informing teaching. It's impossible to imagine a scenario in 2023 where anybody who is standing up talking about film theory has no capacity for applying their own practice to that discussion. The two of them, I mean, it takes us back to people like Eisenstein and people like that who are, were talking about what they were doing, doing it and then writing about it. And there's the same thing today because what me, it also means is it helps us connect with an entire new generation of people who are committed to practice because it's all they've been doing since they've been three or four or five or six in terms of making. So teaching in the abstract doesn't survive without the practice element anymore. It makes no sense to talk about film without talking about practice. No. It makes no sense to teach film without using practice. No. So you're saying Eisenstein did it, Truffaut did it, Godard did it. Laura Mulvey. Everybody yeah, yeah. who matters in the film analysis space. Yeah. Bogdanovich did it. Everybody has been doing it, teaching. Yeah and practice, practice and teaching. There's really no difference between the... We can even add brackage to this, of course, and people like Chris Wellsby as well. It's a fascinating conversation because one of the reasons why we're having this conversation today on the Ripecast is because there's a, a new paradigm shift taking place within DBS where we're trying to get out from the shadow of under the Death Star and bring these things into the open in terms of conversation. And... What has always happened in the past is whenever you say the word research, nine-tenths of a room look down because they haven't published a book. And we're not really aiming to keep it in that area anymore. So talking about what we do and how it informs our teaching, 
our professional practice, all of these areas, our brands, our digital um, brandings of ourselves, all of this is vital because it's the way our students learn from actually seeing people do things rather than just say things. It's not just our students, Barney, it's everybody. It's Absolutely. the way everybody learns. It's the way anybody has learned for the last 300,000 years of human existence. We learn by watching other people do. Unfortunately, though, most teaching, uh, we're attempting to help people learn by watching what other people don't do which is by simply forcing them to listen while we stand there reading PowerPoint to them. So it's also it's a useful way of engaging with the shifting tectonic plates of teaching and learning where technology has now broken lecturing. We need to have other things to do in the classroom. Uh, and I'm happy to report things are changing. I'm on the academic board as a faculty representative, and one of the things that we've been doing over the last year and a half was reshaping the uh, committees that report to the academic board and the artist formerly known as the Research Committee is now known <laughs> as the Applied Research and Practice Committee. Mm. Uh, and that, it's small things like that. You yeah. change the lexicon, you change the language, yeah. you change the way people think about the thing that they're talking about. Yeah. So having practice in the conversation all the time mm. has been my uh, zealous mission for the last uh, 10 years. And I think, I think we've made some progress. Well, I've got good news for you. You don't have to say this anymore because from now on, we are the latest research strategy is called RIPE 23, which is research, innovation, practice, and enterprise. So congratulations on a mission accomplished, my friend, after years of trying. Perhaps we might move on to, because one of the other things that I know that is very close to your heart is Film Island. So perhaps you might tell me about this it's become a, not an obsession, but basically you rescued an entire library, I think, did you not? Perhaps you might tell the story better than me. Okay, I'm going to stop here and ask Dave, how long is your program? Because I could talk about this for, for ages. We can do another five minutes, I'll oh, find so that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Film Ireland uh, was Ireland's leading journal, magazine, publication uh, on film and media for about 30 years. Started in the late 1980s, when Filmbase began in the Temple Bar. And I was lucky enough to be involved in Filmbase for about, well, 10 years, mm -hmm. from 2008 until 2016. Uh, I was on the board and I drove the master's program, as yep. we mentioned earlier on. But Film Ireland was bubbling away under the surface all that time, being the publication, the output mm. of the organization and, and for the small burgeoning sector, yeah. which we called at the time the Irish film industry. Um, in 2013, the Arts Council pulled funding for the print version of Film Ireland and it went entirely online. That's right, yeah. And that changed it, but uh, didn't diminish it. It just changed the nature of it and it changed the output. Um, Stephen Galvin stayed on as full-time editor and was joined then by Gemma Craig and they are still the it's joint, still running today isn't still it? the co-editors yeah, yeah. of filmireland.net yeah. which is an exclusively digital online yeah. piece now for a whole series of reasons most of them very unfortunate Filmbase went into liquidation to voluntary liquidation in March 2018 mm. and I got a call from Stephen Galvin the editor of Film Ireland as he was literally emptying his office yeah. uh, he said I need you to come down and have a look at some of the stuff that we have here because the liquidator has ordered a skip for tomorrow morning to clear out everything in the building. Mm. Uh, and he said, I think you should you know, find space. Maybe in DBS you can find space and place for some of this material. So I went down and sure enough, I kept, there was boxes and boxes of 
beta tapes, VHS tapes, mm. CDs, audios, um, stills from films from back in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. And then in three boxes in the corner, a single copy of every issue, every print, print issue, issue yeah. from 1986 until 2013 of Film Ireland, 147 issues, a copy listed and detailed by Stephen, who's meticulous in, in all his work. Mm. And I realized if I don't take these boxes out now, yeah. all of this is going to be lost. Yeah. There's an entire physical repository of cultural heritage, mm. which mm. will not be um, will not be lost. Some people may have copies in some places. But not a concurrent no. from first to last. So really what Top you're talking about is a kind of cultural file. archaeology. Exactly. You're like the Indiana Jones of film production in that sense, that you rescued these artifacts. Well, they needed to be rescued. Yeah. Uh, and Stephen, to be fair, Stephen Galvin rang me, and uh, yeah. yes, we answered the call. You helped. Um, the facilities people in DBS were great. I yeah. got a pallet. I walked it down the road. I loaded the three boxes on the pallet, and I brought them back mm. up, and I left them in in the library, in the yeah, yeah. archive room yeah. in the library, where they have languished ever since. But we're hoping to take uh, a new step with that project, which is basically to digitize those 147 issues. That's 12,000 pages of documentation needs to be digitized, needs to be properly digitally archived and indexed and interlinked and hyperlinked. Absolutely. And also it needs to be made available to people. And it needs to be physically made available yeah. as well. So yeah. we, we need a place which is the physical archive and then a web space yep. for the digital archive. It's all very doable. There's a lot of AI tech that does this work for you yep. now. We just need to put it all in place. I think what we're also looking at, though, is one of the things that I love about this collection, and, and obviously you know that I'm very interested in old paper and I love the, this kind of the sense of ephemera, is each cover tells a story about a particular phase, not only in the development of the film industry, but also the country. Because what you're actually doing is you can mine a single image of a cover and it'll tell you, uh, it'll give you a sense of the political wind at the time. It'll tell you who's doing what. A lot of these issues were also edited by alumni now who earlier on weren't necessarily. Well, I think there were 12 full-time editors of Film Ireland over that 30-odd exactly. year space. Exactly. But there were also 35 single-issue special editors brought yeah. in. And they were filmmakers, writers, yeah. actors, craftspeople. So anybody who's anybody in the last 30 years in Irish film has been involved directly, not just in as, as stories in this yeah. journal, but yeah. actually as makers of... Has actually shaped... As publishers, shaped as the editors. Of it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting then because another thing that I think you're very interested in doing is putting on an exhibition. Well, I'd love, I would love. There's 147 covers. Yeah. And they, ver they vary from incredibly creative to absolutely obvious. Yes, of course. Uh, to downright tatty. Yeah. But I don't care. I'd love an exhibition of 147 A4 absolutely. size posters. And those 147 images would themselves tell a story about Irish film over the they last They would do. Years. So we're thinking physical exhibition because of the, the physical nature of the artifacts. But also you and I have talked about this. This would be a really good collaborative project because really any project of this kind needs two things, it, well, three things, space, time, and funding. This is not, it's not free, but it is something that we would be very interested in developing as postgraduate activity, for example. It's a, a resource which currently isn't available 
to the vibrant film postgraduate community. So part of our conversation today is about next steps, looking for collaborative well, partners. Space, time and funding, but not necessarily in that order. No. And the collaborative thing that you talk about is absolutely critical. There are thousands of people around the world, in the UK, in, in, in the States, in Canada, in Australia, yeah. across Europe, studying Irish film. Yeah. And this would be an incredibly useful teaching resource, not just for our undergraduates and our postgrads, but mm. for the entire global community of film scholars. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I, you talked about paper. The sound of paper. Here yeah. we have issue number three, yeah. which is from September, October 1987. And I open it up, and on page three, the first thing I see is a photograph, and the photograph is of Leonard Abramson, cameraman <laughs> John Fitzgerald, and Stephen Rennick on work at Mendel Valsman, a 15-minute film that they made in 1986. Yeah. And Lenny has gone on to become an absolutely A-list international director. Stephen Rennick has gone on to become an A-list international film composer. And there they are, aged 21, 22, mm. On a, a badly printed Xerox copy on of a, a terrible newsletter. photograph in a badly printed zero Xerox copy of a newsletter. Yeah. I, I I bet I haven't. I must talk to Lenny about it. But the next time I meet him, I'm going to ask him, does he have that photograph? Because yeah. I'd say he doesn't. Yeah, it's here. This yeah. is the only copy of it left. That's why this archive is so important. It needs to be preserved, and it needs to be preserved in a sustainable way. Digital is the only way to do that. Mm. Because it's not just film, though, is it? It's cultural memory, obviously, but also it's a recollection, a reminiscence, and a refusal to forget significant spaces. Like the film-based building in uh, Curve Street was a significant space for people. There are lots of cultural spaces in Dublin that have disappeared, and so this is also a story of those spaces and so another thing that would come from this project, I think, would be an interesting documentary, mm. for example. Um, I think what's really interesting here is this is a TBC. I'd love you to come back, Connor, sometime and perhaps give us an update on how the project is going. Certainly, you know how I feel about this, and I'm very, very interested in um, seeing it develop. But for the moment, Connor, thanks very much for coming on to Pop Ripecast. I really appreciate you coming in. Thank you very much. Thanks for the encouragement, and uh, look, good luck with the project. This is Ripecast, the podcast series for all things research, innovation, practice, and enterprise. I'm Barney Taylor, and thank you for listening. See you in the next edition. Right cast, research, innovation, practice, enterprise. <laughs>